to The Curious Mother. We aim to create a space that encourages active discussion without judgment. I am Melissa Millers, psychologist and mother of two. I am Kristen Daly, psychologist and mother of three. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for joining us. Welcome back to The Curious Mother. I'm Kristen Daly. And I'm Melissa Miller. Hey, Kristen. So what have you been curious about lately? Well, Melissa, I actually I have to confess, uh, we have been struggling with one of our children. And one of the, the recommendations that we've been considering is whether or not we should get a full assessment done on that particular child. And so as I've been thinking about it, I realized I happen to know a really great resource to answer all of my questions. I thought I would take advantage of our platform because I figured I'm probably not the only person out there who has questions about assessments. So we are going to be joined today by Dr. Michelle Mannering, and she is a licensed psychologist and nationally certified school psychologist. She completed her undergraduate degree in human development at Boston College and also obtained a master's degree in developmental psychology in Boston, at Boston College, and then went on to get her PhD from Fordham University in school psychology. She completed her postdoctoral fellowship in pediatric psychology at Children's Hospital Boston in the Developmental Medicine Center. She has worked in a lot of different contexts, doing assessments, consultants, and a range of treatment from infancy to adolescence. Eventually, she was able to complete a second fellowship year at the University of Miami, Miami Miller School of Medicine in the Department of Pediatrics for child development, focusing on neuropsychological testing for children and adolescents. Somehow, we were lucky to land Dr. Mannering in our own community. So for the past five years, she has run a private practice in Charlotte, Myers Park Pediatric Psychology, and she's a member of the American Psychological Association, the National Association of School Psychologists, and the Mecklenburg Psych Association. So welcome, Dr. Mannering. We're happy to have you. Well, thanks so much for having me. That is an impressive resume. I am really excited to hear from you today. <laughs> I'm happy to help. So, I mean, it sounds like you've really pursued a lot of specialized training in assessment and neuropsychology. Tell me a little bit about what interested you so much in that area. So when I was in college, um, I was particularly interested in special education. And um, part of my undergraduate training was actually in special ed. And when I did my student teaching, I sort of realized that that end of it wasn't the part, sort of the figuring out how different children's brains work and then what might be able to help them most find success in life, in school, sort of everywhere. I, I shifted gears a little bit out of special ed and then tried to figure things out a little bit more in developmental psych and then went on and realized that testing was really where I was interested. Um, and that's sort of how I ended up where I am today. One of the big questions I have and also kind of reached out to some of my community, how do you know your child might need or benefit from a psychological assessment? So I think that um, there are a couple of different ways that 
the idea of testing comes up for parents. Um, first, it can oftentimes be suggested by the child's pediatrician. Pediatrician may suspect that something is going on and not be able to quite pinpoint what it is. And so they recommend testing to further explore potentially um, what might be contributing to the child's difficulties. Second, it could be suggested by the child's teacher because they may be noticing patterns going on at school, concerning or worrisome. But a lot of times it's really the parent's gut instinct that leads them to think something is amiss and I'm really not quite sure what it is. Many of my referrals just come straight from parents who are worried that something seems different, something seems off, I don't know what it is. Um, and they just want some help kind of figuring out what it might be and the next best steps from there. Or sometimes kids will notice something is wrong. And um, I've had a number of parents call because the child has said that they feel like something is sort of going on and aren't able to identify it. Really all sorts of viral sources and indicators for assessment. So what is that process? So let's say that our middle schoolers decided that she probably just shouldn't be in school and we're trying to explain to her that that's not really an option. What what would, what are the next steps? What what does that process tend to look like for parents? So typically what will happen is a parent will call and explain what's going on. Depending on what is going on, sometimes depending on the age of the child and the individual circumstances, I may say, you know what, I'm not the right person at this point. I think maybe we should try Avenue X and then kind of come back to me. But if it was something like what you just described where your daughter is feeling like, eh, I'm not sure I need to be going to school, then certainly I would talk with you about potential causes for why she's feeling this way and then explain how there could be multiple things going on that could be contributing to her sentiments and then how testing sort of taps into each of those areas and can help figure out out what might be driving the bus and then what might be riding in the back seat and the next back seat and sort of make a plan from there. So I try to um, prioritize what needs to be looked at first. Um, and if it's me, it's me. And if it's not me, it doesn't have to be. So it's usually a phone call or a consult to parcel out who's the best person and in what order to do things. If you are the right person and you kind of talk about assessments, what does that mean? What should parents expect? People are calling for so many different reasons. Um, and, and so assessment... Um, is guided by the referral concern. If you're calling about your really young child who um, is having some language delays and some social difficulties, that's going to look much more like a play-based assessment, um, getting a sense of sort of where they're at verbally and non-verbally, that sort of thing. If you're calling because you have a school-age child and you're uh, have concerns about learning or attention, that's going to be different for sure. You're, you know, that's an assessment that's going to involve multiple different areas of functioning that we look at. If it's something that you have a child or an adolescent where you're more concerned about something like anxiety or depression or mood, that would be another evaluation. So what it looks like is really prompted in part by where the parent or whoever is referring the child, what their cons primary concern is. A lot of times what I may start off doing is tweaked along the way because other things come up and it seems like something else might be helpful or whatever it may be. So 
each assessment is really contingent on what's going on for that kid. So what are the typical types of assessments that can be performed? So a part of the, um, in thinking about that, if there are some semantical issues and people call different kinds of evaluations, different types of things, I would say that anytime you see something that's called a developmental or a neurodevelopmental or something that implies development in it, that, that's really for a child who has something that is not keeping up with their other skills. Um, so there's some sort of outlier going on. Oftentimes it's their social skills. Um, and mm -hmm. so that's really going to be an assessment that's based a lot more on how the child plays, how they use toys, that sort of thing. And then a lot of input from parent, teacher, whoever has one-to-one um, -one experience with that child and can comment on sort of the sorts of things that they're seeing in different settings, the child's language, um, the child's behavior, those types of anecdotal information. So that would be more developmentally based. You then can, a lot of times you'll see an evaluation called a psychoeducational evaluation. That would be more of an evaluation or a testing that's designed for concern around a specific learning issue, a child who may have difficulties with reading or writing or math. Um, and it's not just a math test or a reading test. It's really um, much more involved than that but it's usually designed because something academic is the major concern. You would then maybe see an evaluation called a neuropsychological assessment. That is when the concern is around something related to attention or memory, um, the things that we know happen in the front part of the brain, uh, trying to figure out why is this child or adolescent having trouble with planning and organizing and managing their time and those sorts of things. Um, and then you may also see an assessment that's just called a psychological assessment or a psychosocial assessment. And that would be more pertinent for a child or adolescent who is exhibiting signs of depression, anxiety, trouble with regulating their mood, personality concerns, that sort of thing. So different people use different labels, but I think that that's a pretty general framework for the different ones that you might see. A lot of folks I know um, might have gotten an assessment for say like ADHD is you know, one of the more common diagnoses. And a lot of them will get maybe a simplified assessment at a doctor's office and are wondering, is that enough to know that this is what's going on with my child or when would I, when would it make sense to do a more comprehensive assessment? There are definitely a certain percentage of kids who um, through a series of checklists, meet criteria for ADHD, um, receive the diagnosis and then may or may not start medication or do some other intervention based on that diagnosis. The fog is lifted, there's this aha moment and they really take off and thrive. I don't think that that's the overwhelming majority of, of kids who that happens to, but it definitely happens for some. Um, the other kids where that does not happen, there's really so much more to it than just paying attention. And so what we know is that 
a, a decent percentage, at least 30% of kids who meet criteria for ADHD have an additional diagnosis as well, whether or not that might be a learning disability, it might be something more related to emotional functioning, but there is oftentimes something else going on. And without doing additional testing, you may not know what it is. Um, and the longer that you don't know what it is, it all can get very gray and appear much less black and white than just ADHD or no ADHD. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I think my recommendation would be that unless you have that aha, suddenly things have clicked and you're on your way, then really testing is going to give you a lot more information about how that diagnosis is specifically impacting your child, we know certain strengths emerge, there are typical weaknesses that we see, and then uh, interventions may really need to be tailored a little bit more specifically, depending on testing results. Mm -hmm. Michelle, I'm so, curious, yeah. in this day and age of remote learning and COVID, are you noticing any trends with kids and learning? In the past 10 months, a lot of parents have reached out and said, I've really noticed my child struggling with remote learning. Um, and mm -hmm. I think that my first answer is many children are struggling with remote learning. Um, it is not a replica for what goes on in the classroom. And uh, teachers are doing an amazing job, but that the real life element, it just can't be reproduced. And so many kids who I've seen have provided helpful insight of what part of the breakdown is and how that's impacting their learning. So kids have said things like, I can't you know, read their facial expressions as well. I can't read their body language. I don't detect a change in tone. They're not getting that individual, hey, that was a great job. They're not getting that pat on the shoulder. Those things that kids really value for feedback is not there. There's also a, an element to it that does not replicate real life in that you're looking at a screen, the screen is changing, there's other people on the screen, it's going in, it's going out, Zoom disconnects, all of these other factors thrown into the mix. I think that it has been helpful for parents to see some things, but I think there's also a let's take a deep breath and realize that this is really artificial at the end of the day mm -hmm. and that kids are not learning the same way um, that they're used to learning. And this is still a learning curve for everybody. If that is your only concern, I think I would say, you know, part of what we do in testing relies so much on teacher input on behavior in the classroom and what they see. And we don't have that right now. Um, even for kids who are in school full time, there's still this part of it that is not completely natural. Kids are distant, teachers can't get near them. Um, and so mm -hmm right now is a really hard time to get an accurate snapshot of how the child is doing. Um, so unless there have been really long standing concerns and now we've kind of hit a breaking point, that's one thing. But if these concerns have just popped up, I, I think it, part of it has to be a little bit more of a waiting game to see, well, what is it gonna be like when kids do re return to a more natural learning? environment. Mm -hmm. 
That is fascinating to hear. And I think really good to hear because I, I hear all my friends talking about what a struggle it is, how frustrating it is to see their kid uninvested, um, unmotivated. They don't feel like they're learning. They can't sit still. So if, if it's not something that can be assessed at this time because it is such a different, um, so different than what, what would they normally be in? What, what suggestions do you have for parents to kind of deal with this? I have told a lot of parents that we need to really prioritize what's most important right now. And it is very stressful watching your child's assignments pile up and, and they're stressed out and all of this. But at the end of the day, there also has to be a recognition that academics are not the most important thing um, always, even though it feels that way. Uh, and I think we have to remember that this has been such a drastic um, turn for kids in every aspect of their life that we have to prioritize preserving their emotional well-being and the school stuff will come in time. I promise you it will come in time. Every kid in this country is sort of in the same boat. Your child is not falling further behind than somebody else. You know, the Harvard application is, is still going to be the Harvard application, but we have to make sure that your child is in a mental space that is healthy and adaptive first and foremost. And, and then we can worry about, well, do they need to do tutoring next summer? Do they you know, need to repeat whatever class? It will all work out. Kids are amazingly resilient, especially in terms of learning. Um, so I typically tell parents, you know, pick and choose your battles, but don't battle everything. We don't know how much longer we're going to be in this for. And so if you're already butting heads every day and you might be up against months and months of butting heads, um, that's not going to be ideal for anybody. So I have found that teachers are exceptionally flexible. You know, this is not ideal for anybody. And so if you're feeling like, my child can't keep up or my child doesn't want to get out of bed. My whatever it is, having a dialogue with the teacher, with the school counselor, making a plan. I think that that's reasonable. It just may not, you know, the um, whatever is laid out, how the plan is set right now may not be workable for your kid. I don't quite understand why the media keeps focusing on how far behind children are getting, because I just I just keep imagining they are incredibly flexible and we all can just take a break and know it's all going to be okay. Like, I mean, I just, I know that different schools are doing things differently, but I don't think that we're going to have where there's this, this huge dichotomy that people keep kind of catastrophizing, you know, like that I, I read somewhere that kids will be set back five years and I'm like five years from what, you know, right. <laughs> I don't. I don't understand. I know that I, I, I have a tendency to maybe be a little bit more prioritizing mental health over other things, but it just doesn't make any sense to me to be so concerned if they're not invested right now. And I think that the problem is that up until, well, I mean, it continues, 
but we have become this society in a rat race towards something. And the pandemic has sort of thwarted our path on this rat race towards whatever that goal is. And Mm -hmm. so I think many parents, their natural response is to try to sort of control something because let's be honest, life is pretty out of control right now. And so by hyper-focusing on, you know, what is my child in third grade learning? Are they falling behind all of this? I think that it it serves a purpose because it's something to focus on, but I, I just am not sure that it's the right thing to focus on at this point in time. You and I had a conversation uh, at a baby shower that I was reflecting to somebody the other day because uh, Michelle and I were both talking about how our goal with our children is pretty much like aim for mediocrity a little bit. like. <laughs> because it's you know what we were talking about was like this so many kids enter college just completely burned out and it's okay to not have them in five different activities and I I think we always in our household have said you know we'd like for you to land in a college it doesn't have to be like the dream college you know I was when I, I went to Chapel Hill undergrad And I was really jealous of all the people who transferred in as juniors because they ended up with better GPAs than I did because they didn't have to sweat out those first year of college uh, college at Chapel Hill where everybody else got bad grades. I always wonder how many of us in our profession really do have that sense of it's, it's, everything's going to be okay if we don't panic and don't put so much pressure on our, on our little people. I think this too, you know, they, it it is helping me to realize just how pressured they were before. Now we've introduced this situation where I think we've taken away so many outlets that were probably helping to diffuse some of the pressure. Um, You know, kids are not having the opportunity for natural social experiences. Kids may or may not be able to participate in activities the same way. Sports may be on hiatus. And so what I have seen is that um, this model of kids not being in school consistently it has really made me aware that that whole structure was holding kids together and removal of that structure has led kids to fall apart. And there's no way that even the best parent in the world can create that structure. And so it it really is, you know, I don't want to sound like I'm beating a dead horse, but for as resilient as kids are, this is an enormous, enormous stressor that has been put on them. Um, they sort of have nothing to fall back on. So much that they enjoy has been taken away. Um, it really is a trauma in many senses. And so I, I think that um, they, so many kids were probably ready to explode, but holding it together, we've taken away the external structure. And now I think you're seeing a lot of them have far more difficulty than we anticipated. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Michelle, that's yeah. such a good reminder because I, I think oftentimes parents, what I hear a lot is, oh my gosh, to not have to be going on this fast paced schedule. It's so nice to slow down. They're sleeping more. There are some wins there, but I think you're absolutely right that Yes, it's really nice that we aren't driving all over the place, but what are they missing because of that? And that's a big reminder that those were the positives sort of balancing out all of the stress. 
And for the kid who wasn't feeling great about themselves academically for whatever reason, well, maybe they felt really great about themselves on the debate club, or maybe they felt really great Mm -hmm. about themselves, you know, playing tennis or whatever it was. And now it's like, huh, I've got nothing to pull from that's really making me feel great. Um, And I think that that's especially true. I think I've seen it hit middle school and high school age kids, especially hard, just having no reserve to pull from Mm -hmm. to sort of help manage. And again, as we're trudging through without a clear, you know, point of knowing when things might change again, um, that unknown is is pretty unsettling. I realized that for my middle schooler, physical activity was the thing. Actually, all three of my kids need physical activity to regulate, but my oldest and youngest, their activities were able to continue even with all the closing and everything else. But middle child, hers went away. And so we, she has a pod of two really close friends. And now I just have them all working out together on a regular basis because we tried to find a sport. It's not working right now, but I was like, you just got to move your body. One of the recommendations that I know you gave a friend of mine was uh, also to farm out some of the, like, so you recommended to her that her child use an executive functioning coach. And that I know was a really big game changer for their household, because I think that it was good for her to know that, um, that she didn't have to try to solve all of the kids' problems or didn't, you know, like there was a lot of conflict between the two of them about her staying on, on top of everything and adding this third party really just kind of took a lot of the pressure off of their relationship. I've had a number of clients, you know, I haven't seen their child in a while, but they've called with concerns over the past few months. Um, and a number of them have said that they are um, utilizing, and it's not even as um, specific as an executive functioning coach, it's just somebody, a literal body to be sitting there um, making sure that their child stays on top of their work, gets something done, and it takes them out of the equation. That has worked better than a specific subject tutor. It is really just, I'm not bugging you, this person's bugging you, and you're not going to talk back to this person, and everybody can kind of peaceably coexist. So for Mm -hmm. sure now, whether it's virtually or if there is some safe way to do it distanced, I think I'm seeing more and more of that model of um, let's look at your assignments. What do you have to do when? Here's your calendar. Let's make a list. Um, And this other adult really helping them navigate it because kids are used to a certain flow in school. History teacher always does it this way. Science teacher always does it that way. Um, and it's it's just not uh, the same when, when things are virtual. Where are things? Are they in Google Classroom? Are they here? Are they there? So that external support at this point is probably even more helpful than it was um, just because things are naturally more disorganized given this format for so many kids. Michelle, I imagine that one of the gifts you offer to parents is not only like when you, when I heard executive functioning coach, like how many people know that's even a thing, like barely anyone. Right. So right. I imagine that you offer a window into resources and tools that parents didn't have any idea about. And also this permission that as parents, we don't have to solve everything or be everyone to our kids. Right. Like, I think, 
I hear a lot. So many parents feel like they have to now be everything on top of being the mom. They have to be the teacher. They have to be the, the workout coach. They have to be the soccer coach. They have to be the chef. They, they are doing it all. And I just think that's really unfair. So to give parents permission, like take a step back, bring somebody else in this, you don't have to do it all. Yeah, no, I, I think that it, you know, like anything else in life, if you're trying to do all of those things, you can't possibly do any of them well, right? Like everything's going to be done with such mediocrity. But I also think it's really hard for a child to, especially younger kids to sort of figure out like, wait, do I come to you if something's bothering me? Or do I come to you if I can't add? Or do I come to you, you know, because um, I need something cleaned up? Like who exactly are you? Unless you've opted for homeschooling and you wanted to be their teacher. Most parents right now are really in a predicament of this is not exactly what I had signed up for. It's going to work itself out and I don't need to spend an hour reteaching my child this material. It's going, it's going to be okay. Um, Mm -hmm. Same thing with activities. You can let them loose in the backyard, um, but I don't think that it's reasonable for parents to be facilitating backyard soccer games themselves and all that sort of thing. There are lots of creative ways to um, outsource and still maintain safety. Yeah. I've had a couple of friends who have um, outsourced to high schoolers because they're incredibly affordable. So I had one friend who outsourced her child's um, baseball coaching to a high schooler who was, who played baseball. And I had another friend who has outsourced the homework coaching to a high schooler who comes over for like $15 an hour, spends an hour with the kid and goes through all of their homework. And is like, it's just a nice, middle ground and it doesn't yeah it's not it's not that they need really special skills training it's just please let it be somebody else in the role we we had out uh, outsourced soccer instruction to a neighborhood high schooler um and you know i think you forget that when kids are little everybody seems old right so i don't think that there was any difference between how they understood how old he was versus if the coach was 35 it was it, it was somebody <laughs> bigger than them <laughs> and that's yeah. all what can parents do if they go through the assessment process and I got this question um, from a few folks on social media what happens if you don't really understand the recommendations that are being made you know how what do you what it what can you do to try to translate some of that I think one of the hardest things for parents when you go into testing and you get this very long report and you try to read it, they are typically very wordy. The scores don't intuitively make sense because most people are conditioned to think of a hundred as the highest score you can attain because that's how you scored on tests in school um, and kind of go from there. And that is not how tests that we use are scored at all. And to make it even more confusing, then there are all different kinds of scores used. There are standard scores and scaled scores and T-scores and Z-scores. And I don't expect most people as scores mean. So um, I I think that I typically will tell parents to review it, write down your questions, and then we reconvene again, because when you meet with parents and go over everything, it's exceptionally overwhelming. And it's a lot of information to sort of take in at one time. Um, And even if I do a sort of cliff note synopsis at the end, 
they inevitably will read the report and feel like I have more questions. I didn't understand this. What do you mean 100 isn't the best score? That sort of thing. And so I encourage all of my clients to follow back up with any specific questions that they have and review it and um, break it down however it might need to be broken down further. I've heard from some friends saying that when they have gone in for the feedback session, they didn't anticipate how emotional they would be. And so afterwards they walked out and they didn't remember anything. And Mm -hmm. so I think that's a really good idea to remember that doesn't have to be the only time. Take notes when you're in there and you can follow up with questions later. And I think too, it, you know, it's very hard to know for parents what's going to trigger that emotional response. And so it may have seen like, seems like something really black and white. I had a, an evaluation recently where um, it was, it was very straightforward. The parents sort of knew what was going on and this was just confirming it. That hearing me say it, that confirmation and feeling like, I know what it is and now I can make a plan and now we know what to do. Just I, I think led to this sense of relief that um, they weren't anticipating. And so that initial meeting to go over things is helpful, but oftentimes not the only thing that parents need. So there are people that call me years later and want to talk about something and that's totally fine. My middle schooler was initially tested when she was barely six. And I'm kind of regretting, I feel like we, we jumped the gun a little bit on having her tested so young. And is it common to need an update in testing or, and, and what is the typical frequency you would look at doing that? Part of that decision is dictated by the school the child attends. It is fairly common for uh, schools to require testing to be updated every three years. Um, nothing necessarily magically happens during those three years. And so it's another decision that I would say is sort of a case by case basis. If you were evaluated and received a diagnosis of ADHD, ADHD is static, it's not going to change. Um, I think that what's helpful though, is to recognize that as the child gets older, the academic demands are going to change. And so it might be helpful in thinking about it, something to do maybe before middle school or before high school when there is that natural transition point and you know that what will be asked of them will likely be different than what they're used to. And that diagnosis may play in more than it did when they were younger. Uh, So I often will tell parents a natural transition point is a good time to do it so that you have more useful information as they move on to the next phase of academics. Another logistical reason why updated testing comes up is because children or adolescents will need it for accommodations if they're going to take the SAT or ACT. So there's a certain recency that needs to be in place there. If something seems, you know, new, different, changed, if it's something that needs to be done, we could certainly do it in less than three years. If it seems like, gosh, things have not gotten any better, um, maybe an abbreviated evaluation needs to be done. So it really depends on the kid, the diagnosis. If you have a really young child, a pre-K or kindergarten student where you have concerns about early reading, I will often say, you know, remember um, 
they don't need to be reading quite yet. And, and we're going to, you know, like time out a little bit, um, but we can look for some red flags and then do formal assessment when they're a little bit older. Um, so that's a long way of saying it really depends on the kid. Um, so it may be a year later, it, many years may go by. So thinking about those benchmarks, like I think those benchmark, you know, middle school, high school probably are really good times to be really reflecting on whether or not there, things are going well or need some change. Yes. So I've got several college students that I see who are just now starting to suspect they might have attention problems. Is that, and, but, but they're struggling with, should I get tested because it was never a problem before? If this was really a thing, it would have shown up in my early years. What, what would you say to them? The guidelines around the diagnosis seem to change every few years. Um, and there's less weight put on having signs during early childhood than there have been historically. What I think is important is to remember that a, something like a diagnosis of ADHD may not pop up until later on when um, so many of those external supports are taken away. Kids who are bright and have been successful often have figured out ways to compensate. One of those ways that they compensate is by working very hard. You can do that in high school relatively successfully because you have this monotonous schedule and you sort of know how it's gonna work. All of a sudden college opens this can of worms that young adults aren't used to and there's all of this time and they can't figure out exactly how to organize and they can't manage their time and things are piling up and they don't realize it and so some of the signs are manifest more just because it's not that monotonous oh right today i've got three hours to do my work today i only have one hour that sort of thing the predictability part is taken away in college and so i do think that there are adolescents who have worked around it and when they are on their own and the demands change in college, it becomes more apparent to them. Mm -hmm. And these are kids that might've been really successful, you know, high achieving, into honors college, um, never had an accommodation, was never on anybody's radar. Parents are like, you must be crazy, but they are noticing that something is amiss. Um, and I think that that's valid if they're noticing something was amiss. I know we've been talking a lot about attention. And another thing that I hear a lot about is potential problems with processing. Yeah. And I'm, is that something also that is something you assess for? How parents notice that? So processing <laughs> by itself is not helpful. However, lots of people, it's sort of like one of those words, somebody knows to say like something's wrong, it must be processing. Well, the issue is that there are many different kinds of processing. It's not a standalone thing. There is auditory processing. There is language processing. There is graphomotor processing. There are all of these different kinds of processing that go into play. Um, the good news is that most of them are assessed in the kind of testing that we do or that I do. And so if there is a processing deficit in one of those domains where processing exists, it will be detected on 
testing. And it's really important to figure out where specifically that trouble is coming from because the intervention um, of what you're going to do is going to be very different depending on if it's a language processing issue versus a motor processing issue. Michelle, I am uh, really grateful for all of your expertise. I feel like I have a plan of action and hopefully... Um, our listeners also have a good sense of what makes sense as far as like doing an evaluation when it would be called for and also what can come of it. Because I, I do feel that the more we can understand how our individual learners or our, our little people, how they function, we can give them the supports that they need. So I'm grateful that you were able to join us today. Well, thanks for having me. And yeah, I think that I often tell parents it's almost... I almost wish everybody could have testing done because it provides really helpful information, even if you don't have concerns about where your child's strengths and weaknesses are and, and that sort of thing. But definitely in these times where things are very different, uh, I think it's helpful to know, do I call somebody? Do I not call somebody? Do I wait this out? Do I act? What do I do? And 99% mm-hmm. of the time, parents are also right with their gut instinct, right? We hope you enjoyed listening to this episode of The Curious Mother. Please join our community and add your voice. Follow us on Instagram at The Curious Mother. Thanks for listening.